You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, the markets have not been going up lately like they've been doing for the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, 2016 was utopia. 2017 was utopia squared. This year's like reality. Yeah. What happened? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of theories, a lot of things going on. Fed, The Fed has raised rates on the short end of the curve. That's been one thing. There's this trade war. There's a trade war, although I think that's overrated. I, earnings haven't been as good. I think that's probably the bigger one. And I also think just investors are under – they acknowledge the market's been so good for 10 years. And I think that, that weighs on people. You know I, you know what? I got a, a nice amount of profit. So I think that all combined probably equals this sort of um, change in mindset. And you can see this change in mindset in the ETF flows with what we're calling regime changes. Uh, it's not the typical year where – you know, a good headline, you see all this money rush into the S&P 500 ETFs, bad headline, it all comes out. You see a little of that, but underneath you see some real different dynamics going on that is very different. And it could be the transition year to a, a sort of more rougher, different kind of defensive future. Not that we know. but We don't know, but it, it, the, the flows feel and look different. And joining us for this episode, Carolina Wilson, who's a, a reporter with Bloomberg News covering ETFs, and Tom Serafagas with Bloomberg Intelligence. Both of them have been on the show before. Welcome back. This time on Trillions, regime changes. Tom, you do a lot of charts at Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric says this is a top five for the year. What did you recently chart? This is a big year for ETFs, I think, because this chart sort of, sort of tells a few different stories. It's one, the market is a lot more volatile than it was in past years, but overall ETFs are still taking in money, right? So it's still positive on the year. It's not like everyone's flocking out of ETFs. But also, there's a lot of like sort of rejiggering going on, and I think that speaks a lot to the way ETFs are being used, right, very actively. It's not just you're buying the S&P 500, that's it. Just ETF investors themselves are being very tactical on how they're allocating money. So what I looked at was, with all the volatility this year, let's look at the more defensive areas of the market, right? So like boring sectors like utilities, low-vol ETFs, et cetera. Um, As a percentage basis, everyone's been going into those areas, right? Tech has been so hot for such a long time. The market jitters this year sort of pulled everyone to go to these more safer areas of the market. So on a percentage basis, it's actually one of the highest flocks of these defensive areas of the market that we've ever seen. And was this a like a Q1, Q2, Q3 thing or like a Q3 thing? It was really in the second half of the year. So like Q3, mm-hmm. right? And then also with October and then even November. So that really helped accelerate it too a lot. And like even now in December, I mean, the market's been pretty volatile. So it's it's... We're still seeing money sort of fall into these defensive areas. And, and Eric, what did you think when you saw that? Uh, well, we discussed this and we thought, well, let's just group everything into defensive versus more offensive. Gold is in there too, by the way. That's been doing okay. 80% is of the flows going into ETFs in the fourth quarter have gone into these defensive ETFs. That's up from what? Almost nothing, right? And 
it's hit this point a couple times in the past 10 years. W- when else did it hit about the 80 percent number? Sure. And it sort of coincided with, uh, like in 2011, the market was down, right? We had the beginning of 2016, the market was really volatile. But there was also a lot of other things happening too. Like, remember a couple of years ago, like the taper tantrum was like a really big thing when rates would go up and the market was trading around it. Um, money would flock into like really short-term areas like, like the fixed income market. But most of the time, this has been associated with, with the market going down. And I think Tom brings up a good point, which is, especially on Twitter, I hear this a lot. People's like, oh, wait until the the passive bubble pops, or wait until the S&P or beta stops working. But passive and ETFs aren't just equity beta. They actually make products to play or hedge against equity beta falling, like cash-like ETFs, uh, hedge fund-like ETFs, gold, alternatives. So I think that's the $275 billion into ETFs this year, and a lot of it going into defensive speaks to ETFs providing the tools for any kind of market. And the bigger area of that defensive is short-term and ultra-short-term debt ETFs. These are very boring. You know, they hold treasuries, sometimes corporates. Carolina, um, in my opinion, this is probably the flow story of the year, is the money into these really safe and boring. Why the er- surge into these and which ones are seeing action? And you, this is something that you've written about, too. A lot. And thanks for, for setting this up to be so boring. But. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can doze off now. No, but Joel was mentioning or asking, is this a Q1, a Q2, or a Q3 thing? I mean, it's been an absolute craze, these flows into this area of the fixed income market all year. It's been a hot spot. I mean, to give you a little size and scope, because it really just has been massive, funds tracking. It's not a Bloomberg news story unless it has size and scope. Exactly. For the and it doesn't, if, if it doesn't have the word massive, superlative. <laughs> Most sense. <laughs> exactly. Funds tracking ultra-short bonds have taken in close to $30 billion this year. Um, so that's not only a clear record for the category for any other year, but it's also so much more than the, the second most year, which was 2013, when they only took in $9 billion. So we're talking about $30 billion this year compared to that $9 billion in 2013. And so why do these funds lure so much cash? I mean, as the yield curve flattens, bonds on the shorter end of the curve are just more attractive from a yield perspective. So why would you not opt for a strategy offering less duration risk? And so investors race to the short end and how the sh- yield play. And how, how short are we talking? So I like to call them the Fab Five. These are the five <laughs> funds that I, I really can't write about flows into one without writing about flows into all five of them. Who are the Fab Five in ETF? <clears throat> bill, that's the Spider Barclays one to three month T-bill, very ultra short. G-bill, that's the Goldman Sachs, that's zero to one year, a little more exciting. JPST, JP Morgan, ultra short income. Shy, the iShares one to three year. Now we're going out in duration a little bit more, still short term, but not ultra short. And near the iShares short maturity bond ETF. And talk about uh, near a little bit. That one's active, right? So in this rush to protect yourself from equity shocks to go short term and also the yield you get, Right, active has these active has done well in these categories. Right, better than other categories. And so that's interesting because from fixed income more largely, I know that you like to bring up this idea about active and passive in the space. And these bond funds that have done well and they're active, it's because they've dipped into high yield a little bit. But it brings up a good question about whether or not that's something that can be indexed. Right, like can't we just index that instead of having to rely on the actively managed strategy? Yeah, I think Mint and Near right are the two, and JPST. Yeah, those are all active. I think they're all like, what, a duration of less than a year, but they can do corporates, they can go international. They're just trying to squeeze out like 1.5 to 2% yield. So, Tom, that maybe is not that surprising 
that fixed income would be a place that would get uh, see a lot of inflows um, as people go defensive. What's something that was surprising to you? What's thinking fixed income, right? So with so there was almost this perfect storm this year for these products. You had interest rates going up, right? So that hurt fixed income ETFs. So people were trying to shorten the duration. They went into that, but also they go to these products when the equity market is a little bit floppy, right? So you sort of have two avenues that are feeding into these short term debt products. But before this whole story, if you remember, like everyone was saying, "Oh, rates are going to go up. Rates are going to go up." So all these products had come out. Before that, saying, hey, you can still buy your bonds, but we're going to hedge out all that interest rate risk. So these slew of products come out that just interest rate hedge. I thought these were going to take off, especially with like the environment this year. Those have been really underwhelming. Like just there's not a lot of interest in those products. Why? I think what's been happening is investors are just saying, you know what, I'm going to sell my long term that ETF and just go into these short ones, right? Because that's actually what's happening. No one seems to be buying these ones that are sort of like doing it for you, um, sort of like a, a one-stop solution. Everyone's sort of just moving money themselves a little bit shorter. Yeah, and let me jump in. LQDH, which is the hedge version of LQD, is flat. LQD is down 4.4%. So it didn't have the... It didn't have that breakaway that the currency-hedged ETFs did where they almost like doubled the non-hedged one. I just think the breakaway might have to be a little bigger and, and you know, I don't know, shiny object-ish for, for that. And you're right. There's more choices, I think, for on the bond side to hedge besides the interest rate hedge. But I agree. These things were made for this moment and they're not really getting much action. Yeah, and it sort of um, uh, goes back to about the currency hedge stuff. Like that's a package trade, right? So it's doing it for you. Same with these products. So it just maybe it's not, it's not enough juice in the last like couple, you know, last year or so to spark enough interest. And there's just so many market concerns right now, right? I mean, raising rates is one of them, but there's also slowing global growth. There's trade war tension. So people are finding ways to find safety depending on what, which risks they perceive to be greater. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the best performing ETFs of the year, these, again, these boring ETFs that are short term, they're actually like all in the top 20% best performing. They're in the top quartile or top 10% of that. And so they're not really boring in that regard. They're And this is why Todd Rosenbluth, he has a problem with me calling this a craze, like the way people went into currency hedge ETFs or low vol back in 2015. I do consider this a craze because I think this is performance chasing in a way. It just is performance chasing in something that doesn't seem like that. But I would argue probably half the money will leave if other things get better. I don't think this is sticky money. I think this is mostly temporary and thus craze is apropos. But I could see why you would be like, how can it be a craze going into treasuries? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What else have people been doing when you look at it from a strategic level? Where else are they going other than sort of this short-term duration fixed income stuff? Uh, so it's... Go to equities, right? So even though the market has been down and pretty volatile, money's still sort of been shifting even within equities. Um, let's talk about factors. So like low vol. So these are going to be stocks that are going to drop less than the market or whatnot. It's sort of expected. We see it in other years when the market goes down, money sort of piles into these products. So that's been happening too. And then also like value. Like there's this whole thing about value has been underperforming for so long. And when the market goes down, people sort of switch and saying, hey, maybe I'm going to go buy the cheap stuff, right? The more like attractively valued stuff. So there's been a pretty substantial uptick in value 
like the value factor or value focused ETFs too. Um, so value is one, and then you've also seen some action into quality and low volatility factor ETFs, right? So if we grow, th- those are more of the sort of conservative factors, and growth ETFs have seen outflows, and even momentum had a good first start, but has been struggling a little bit in the in the second half. Yeah, exactly. Momentum was like it took in so much money early in the year, so still on the year, I think it's the best like has taken in more money than any other factor, but sort of in this last quarter, it's been a pretty, pretty shift. And just a quick note on this, momentum is just performance chasing. So momentum is actually starting to rebalance into value stocks because they're getting hot. Growth is, is looking at more tech stocks, higher P ratio stocks. Growth has beaten value for 10 years. And that if value starts to outperform growth, that could be a regime change that could lock in for a decade. I mean, that's I think the kind of regime change that could happen, we don't know, but that would be a major one. Does it wear a yellow vest? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a you, th- that's a third rail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Sorry. There you go. Definition third rail right there. Carolina, what else have, has caught your eye? Well, momentum segues ni- nicely into what I was going to say about healthcare um, because the ma- there's my word massive again. The massive moment. Oh, oh can we get some size and scope? <laughs> <laughs> To give you a little size and scope, all ETFs tracking the healthcare sector have taken in more than $8 billion this year. So that's a record year of inflows for the sector. And back to my momentum point, MTUM, the the big iShares momentum ETF, really boosted in its recent rebalancing its exposure to healthcare. So you have some of these drug makers, Merck, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, all having their shares explode to the highest level in more than 17 years. And all of those names were added recently to MTUM. So there is another example of investors looking for a traditionally defensive sector like healthcare, but also going there for the performance chasing for that yield play. And let's talk about utilities, right? Talk about, I mean, if we're going to talk boring, that's probably the the most boring sector. Can can we all agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But they're hot, right? They're outperforming tech, um, and we're seeing money go there, right? Right. Also, a lot of money going into that. XLU is sort of the poster child there. That's the spider utilities ETF and also consumer staples, another very sort of safe sector. And what's in that? When you look at what a utility ETF holds, where do you see them putting the most of their money? Uh, Well, XLU will be a pretty concentrated portfolio. I think it's about 30 stocks. I can name name a couple, but just real quick, XLU is up 10.6% this year. I mean, considering the market's flat and looks like tech is up 3%, that's a major outperformance there. Again, back to if utilities start to permanently outperform tech and communications, which have destroyed it for 10 years, that again would be an amazing change of events. One more thing. Um, I want to go to Tom on this. So, Tom, you actually looked, and I love this deck you did, where you looked at the non-cyclical sectors like utilities, staples, and healthcare for the took in the most relative to the cyclicals, right? In the what was their what was the superlative on that? Most in a couple of years? Yeah, and that's good context because I always like to look at relative to each other, right? Because you can just throw out an absolute number. So I looked at it relative to like tech, uh, like the really cyclical sectors versus the defensive. And it's been three months in favor of the defensive. So it's been like this total buzzkill for the last like three months but the spread has been really wide too so it'd be really interesting like sort of unwinding because so much money has gone into tech etfs and these other sectors we'll see how much of that shifts back into utilities because those sectors from an asset perspective are still pretty small uh, but it'd be interesting to see how much money sort of reallocates from tech 
and some of these other sectors into into staples and whatnot. So a lot of this stuff has been U.S. centric. What about international? So we just wrote about this yesterday because there are investors that are just over the U.S. market volatility and they are piecing out and they are <laughs> going global. How's that for headline writing? Yeah, Joel. Um, so we wrote about the iShares fund with the ticker ACWX. So this ETF gives investors exposure to like virtually every corner of the globe except the U.S. Almost 17% of the holdings are in Japanese equities, a chunk in, in the U.K. And so traders say the U.S. market is overvalued, right? So they want to take their bets elsewhere. Just a quick stat there, IVE, that's the iShares S&P value ETF. The average P.E. ratio there is 17. For ACWX, the XUS ETF, the average P.E. there is about 12.5. So international stocks, hmm. according to P.E. ratios, cheaper than U.S. value stocks. And how much, how much are we talking from a flow perspective there? It was a record. Mm. I don't have no size and scope. Okay, all right, all right. I'll take it. (laughs) ACWX, by the way. So we're talking everything but the U.S. versus the U.S. The SPY, which is the U.S., is up sixty three percent in the past five years. ACWX is only up eight percent. So you could see how this five to ten year period has been a one regime, and it's been all basically tech, U.S. bullish. This, if this flips in growth, you could see, you know, five or 10 years. And it might not, but that's why I think this is a very fascinating year. I've thought things were going to change before, and they snap back to this sort of fang, rah-rah thing. But I don't know. This year feels different to me. Eric, you also think that there's a bigger backdrop to this, right? There is regime change going on, but there's something else. Yes, I do. Because there's really two types of flows, in my opinion. There's the trading crowd, and there's the allocators. The trading crowd is gone. They have been spooked, and that's why you see money out of SPY, EEM, and EFA. Those are very liquid but a little more expensive. Allocators don't like them. They want the real cheap stuff. That's what's leading the flows, even though some of that stuff is down, like IEFA, IEMG, IVV. So allocators are still pouring into this the cheap ETF. So if you clear out the trading crowd, that's why the flows are a little down from last year. You have $265 billion in flows. And then you add in index funds, which took in about another 150. So you're 400 billion in quote passive flows. We looked at that number. 97% of those dollars are going to products that charge 20 basis points or less. That's the highest on record. In other words, the more volatile and wild it is out there, the more the trader trading crowd leaves who buy the more expensive products, and the more cost matters to the allocators. And so this is a bigger climate change type issue for the asset management industry and probably speaks to why asset management stocks are struggling is because it is insatiable the obsession for cost that advisors and allocators have. And you don't see that as clearly until the trading crowd leaves. But when they're gone, that's all there is. And this is a ma- this is the big, big trend that sort of has been going on the whole time, the Vanguard effect, what have you. I feel like we could take a tour of the Natural History Museum and there'd be like a little diorama and you would like describe like, okay, here are the hunter-gatherers leaving the scene and there's a new regime taking over. This to me is a permanent change. Uh, we call it the great cost migration because it's great. It's about cost. And it's migration, meaning it is permanent. And high cost to low cost is arguably the bigger or the more dead-on trend than active-passive. I think active-passive can be – there's a lot of gray area in that. What do you guys think about this sort of cost thing? Does anything surprise you about that? 
No, it doesn't. And I think it's probably only going to accelerate, right? Because as these as these companies scale up, like they're going to products going to get cheaper, right? So they're going to keep getting bigger as money keeps going to the cheaper products. It's just going to keep scaling and bigger and bigger. Um, and that's why they can offer it cheap, right? So, like, Vanguard can offer it really cheap. But as some of these other newer sponsors are taking in money, um, their costs are probably going to come down, too. So this trend's probably just going to keep accelerating. And we even see the migration with hedge funds. I mean, we sort of pour into the 13F filings to see how hedge funds are changing their ETF exposures. And you see them out of EEM, which is the traditional iShares Emerging Markets Fund, and into IEMG. So that's the cheaper core, like smaller emerging that's markets funny. ETF. Yeah, even hedge funds are like... They are. Yeah. They go cheap. Carolina Tom, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. Tom is at T-P-S-A-R-O-F-A-G-I-S. Bonus points if you can say that out loud. Carolina's at C-A-R-O-E Wilson. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.